This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is New York Times bestselling author Jasper Ford. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his newest book, The Constant Rabbit, by publisher Viking Books. The British novelist Jasper Ford writes works of fantasy in what's been called an absurdist reality style. He uses concepts and situations that are grounded in real life, but then gives himself a narrative dare when composing the work and fuses the two together. There's no idea too ridiculous that you can't make work given sufficient tools and expertise and everything else. And when you've got a narrative dare and you can't let yourself off the hook, what it means is you sometimes really have to rummage very deeply in that authorial toolbox to try and find the tools to enable you to tell this very difficult story. You, you can suddenly discover new ways of telling stories and a little spark of originality, which, you know, which we all love. And the original spark this time produced the book The Constant Rabbit. It's our world, but one with anthropomorphic bunnies that speaks to how humans relate to others and themselves. We'll hear about this book, the Thursday Next Book series, and more of the creative life of the New York Times bestseller, Jasper Ford, on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Angie Weidinger. Jasper Ford, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're just so happy that you're here. And, and I want to jump in and talk about this new novel of yours, The Constant Rabbit. I'm wondering if you can give a short description of it. Is that possible? Yeah, this is an elevator pitch from like, it's my Burj Khalifa um, elevator pitch, which is, you know, obviously a very tall building with a very long elevator. Okay, here goes. So, in 1965, 18 rabbits were anthropomorphized in this unprecedented event. They became six foot tall, they could walk, they could talk, they had reason, they had understanding, and everybody was amazed. It's like, whoa, wow, how did that happen? This is incredible, you know, welcome, celebration, you know, let's, so let's talk about this, about being a rabbit, you know, how fantastic. But now it's like 55 years later, it's 2022, numbers of rabbits have grown, not, you know, not dramatically, but they have grown. And all that celebration has turned to suspicion and fear and a little bit of hatred. And now the ruling government in the UK wants to move them, uh, rehome them to a mega warren in Wales, something the rabbits are really not that keen about. My protagonist, Peter Knox, works for the Rabbit Compliance Task Force, which you, as you might imagine, is not that friendly towards rabbits. And he lives in a little village in the middle of Middle England, and things get complicated when a family of rabbits move in next door to him. Uh, the whole village want them out, but this is very complicated because Mrs. Rabbit, Connie, Constance Rabbit, is someone he sort of had a bit of a crush on at university. So it all starts to get 
a little complicated. You have a knack in all of your books that you're able to make something that's absurd. Like we call it absurdist reality, right? It's absurd. And yet the way that you write and the similes and metaphors that you use and the cultural references, you can see yourself in the book's pages almost. Is that one of your hallmarks that it has to feel like it's something that you could be a part of? Writing fantasy books, I, I set them in the present day and everything about the world seems very familiar apart from this sort of one specific thing. And whether it's about, you know, people who can travel into books or that humans hibernate or, you know, they can see different colors or that you have rabbits, you know, walking amongst you. The rest of the world is kind of real and, and it's very recognizable and very familiar and I think that's really important when you're writing sort of whatever it's called, science fantasy or absurdist fiction or whatever. Then the, the reader, I think, has something to, to kind of lock into and say, no, this is, this is a real world. The suspension of disbelief is, is not kind of up here. It's, it's kind of maybe a bit down here. And I kind of do it, I hope, in a kind of slow way. And these, these sort of facts about the rabbits are kind of revealed in a sort of you know, nice, slow way in which I'm in which the, the reader is not suddenly lost. Um, another book of mine, Shades of Grey, you know, that's a very steep entry because it's a very different world. And I wanted to get on with the, the world, but very steep entry. But this one, it's, it's far more like our world. Um, so I think it was neat. It's a, a sort of easy one to, to sort of to buy into. Well, and as you said, you're, you're not very subtle as far as, as what you're, some of the messages that are in there because it's in a Brexit world. You know, we're talking about racism, xenophobia. I mean, are, are, what's your hope? Are you hoping that it kind of shakes people up to, to think about some of the things? Because I know there's a message in there. Um, mm. Like I said, it's, it's not that subtle. Are you hoping that, it, that people kind of take away like, huh, maybe mm. I need to think about these things a little bit? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, mean I, I suppose every writer would like to think they're going to somehow change the world but you know clearly there are issues in this world that we need to deal with you know very big issues very pressing issues and I think it's a broad coalition you know a lot of people are going to have to do a lot of work and some people who have a platform and who have position and are the right place and the right time can do a lot actually you know and that that's not me um but others perhaps like me can do a small amount and, and I think that's really important that this is a broad coalition. And even if you're doing a small amount, you're doing something. And it's very easy to say, well, this is not my problem or I'm not involved or I'm nothing to do with it. And I think what I'm saying with this book, with Peter Knox, who is our everyman, is that he thinks he's kind of one of the good guys. And, and there's this term, leporophobia, right, which is a fear of rabbits. And, and he, he doesn't see himself as leporophobic in any way because he's not as bad as the very worst ones. And he keeps on trying to tell himself, well, if I didn't do my job, you know, someone else would. Um, but he's very complicit in this extremely leporophobic uh, society. And it's about him sort of suddenly realizing that he should be doing something perhaps more. So I, d I don't know. I mean, I hope perhaps people read it and, and think, well, that's quite interesting. I, when, when Jasper tells this story about and these things are happening to rabbits, um, maybe that will make, make people realize that, you know, this is stuff that we do to humans as well. Um, but I think that the most I can hope for perhaps is to um, either, you know, open up people's eyes maybe a tiny bit or cement resolve in people who are already 
you know, getting there, but perhaps just think, no, I really need to do something a little bit more. Even if it's like just challenging friends when they say something that's a bit, um, you know, just so that little amount. So I think that's, I'm under no illusion about, you know, what I'm doing here. Right. I mean, my biggest takeaway was that you can have a belief in something, but if you don't do anything about it, it doesn't mm. really mean anything. And I think that is, you know, the, the question that everyone, I think, maybe is asking themselves, or I hope to ask themselves, is it's not enough just to know the problem. It's good, obviously, you know, this is, this is a step um, to understand the problem and talk about the problem. But if all that meaningless chatter does not lead to some sort of action, then it's just meaningless chatter. And um, I mean, we, the constant rabbit is slang, you know, in the UK, the constant rabbit, you know, bunny. Um, and the constant rabbit means just chattering away sort of banally about pretty much nothing. That was one of the things I was going to ask you is about the title. So rabbit, that's not something that we say here in the US, but, but, but someone who's a constant rabbit, it just means that they talk and talk and don't really ever say anything. Yeah. Is, that, is that what it is? Yeah. So, um, so bunny or rabbit is Cockney rhyming slang for a talk or, you know, chat or anything. And when you say someone, oh, well, it's just con constant rabbit, you know, they're just constantly rabbiting on. It just means they're just, nee, 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 nee. Yeah, they're just talking endlessly. Bunny, 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 bunny. That's all it is. It's just talk, but there's nothing behind it. And so there's, you know, very much a, a sort of play on words there with Constance Rabbit being one of the major characters in the book, um, known as Connie. Constant Rabbit, the chat, and the fact that, you know, Connie, I think, still fancies Peter after, after many, many years. So there's, you know, there's three little plays on words there going on. You mentioned some of the names of the characters, and I, I was wondering where, where the names come from. I mean, so Peter Knox is the main character. Was that a nod to Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit? Yes, there is a kind of spoiler alert. So Peter, I think uh, I wanted him to have a, a rabbit name, so that is, is clearly from Peter Rabbit. Um, telling you why he chose Knox is probably a little bit of a spoiler alert, but relates to a sort of an ongoing trope of mine where I have a, a very, very, very bad pun in plain sight that you don't really realize what's going on until about age 94. Um, but Constance Rabbit, I just think it's a great name, Connie. Um, originally, there was a kind of, I was, I was trying to sort of bring in a sort of Lady Chatterley's lover kind of subplot to it. And her husband is actually called Clifford. So they're Clifford and, and Constance. And that didn't go anywhere, but I kept their names. Although Clifford Rabbit is known as Doc, that's his nickname. Um, but that's kind of where it came from. The daughter's rabbit, his name is Roberta, but known as Bobby. And the son rabbit is called Kent Rabbit. And I don't know why I chose Kent, but I just kind of liked it as a kind of the sort of name that a rabbit would not be called. Um, I want to go back to this idea, this this idea of yours about, you know, the rabbits and, and you know, the, this mm. whole, because it's, it's, it's very creative. And I'm, I read that this came out of, of you thinking about what happens to characters after we see them. And, and this was you thinking about a Cadbury caramel bunny. Is that mm. right? Yeah. So humans have a very strange relationship with rabbits. On one side, we love them and we use words like cute and cuddly and fluffy. And they sell, um, they sell batteries. They sell, they sell condoms. They sell chocolate. And then when we're not well disposed to rabbits, of course, we use words like plague and pest and vermin, and we try and, you know, kill them at every opportunity. So this is kind of strange. But um, the idea of the Cadbury's caramel bunny, I was kind of thinking, and this is, this is 
something that you wouldn't perhaps see in the in the US. Uh, but during the 80s, this highly sexualized rabbit was used to sell chocolate. And, and it was kind of in the 70s and 80s, perhaps early 80s, in the time when you could sort of, it was fine to do that kind of stuff. And I think they still use it, uh, but not such in such an overt way. And I sort of got, I remember getting to think, um, you know, was this the only job she got as a rabbit? And I thought, no, no, she didn't. I reckon she was originally going to be in Pulp Fiction, you know, Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. And there's this section in it called the, the Bonnie incident. And that's where this guy gets shot in the head and they have to clean it all up. And it's the, the scene with Tarantino in it. And, and I thought maybe it was the Bunny incident. And in fact, originally this same rabbit that starred in these commercials, Rover's there because Tarantino said, I want this, I want a rabbit, you know, and it was all about, you know, this rabbit, the Bonnie incident. And they're all doing that thing about, you know, this is good, good coffee. And that whole scene was originally like about carrot juice, you know, where it makes a lot more sense. The fact they're talking about it. And then the, the studios got kind of cold feet and they went, you know, I, I don't think we're ready to have a rabbit. And they said, you've got to reshoot it. And he went, ah, oh, for God's sake. And he did, you know, reshoot it with a human. And Constance Rabbit goes back to the UK thinking, well, I had a chance at the stardom and blew it. And it was really then me going on with that. I go, me telling, asking myself, OK, why didn't she get that job? Why didn't she? Why did they pull her from the final cut? What kind of an England did she return to? And, and where do we take this from here? So quite often, the way I think up ideas is I, I've got these little scenarios that sort of boil around in my head. And it's a logical progression of that, you know, central scenario. And, and once you start thinking one thing and you go, well, maybe they have to live in their, you know, live in colonies, you know, maybe they're not amongst us as they don't have freedom of movement within the UK. Uh, and where do we go with this? And, and then it starts to sort of snowball and the ideas spread and darken and, and the book sort of slowly sort of starts bubbling up. So it's very much associative fact imagining, I guess, and trying to put a logical framework to it all so it kind of vaguely makes sense. I, I read that you, you start your books with what you call a narrative dare. Yeah, so the idea with the narrative dare is that you set yourself the dare. So for Early Riser, the last book I, I had published, for Early Riser, the narrative dare was write a thriller set in a world in which humans have always hibernated. That's the narrative there. And the important word in there is, is always. So the fact that we've always hibernated means that we're actually subtly different socially, economically, uh, all manner of things are slightly off kilter and different. And it's looking at those differences, I think, is the, the excitement. So that's the sort of the narrative dare. But the point that it's a dare is you can't let yourself off the hook. Okay, put it this way. There's no idea too ridiculous that you can't make work given sufficient tools and expertise and everything else. And when you've got a narrative down, you can't let yourself off the hook. What it means is you sometimes really have to rummage very, very, very deeply in, the, in that authorial toolbox to try and find the tools to enable you to tell this very difficult story. And in that journey is some sometimes some really exciting things happen and that's why I say you know I don't let, let myself off the hook uh, I have to carry it through because then yes you, you can suddenly discover new ways of telling stories a new sense of narrative perhaps and a little spark of originality which you know which we all love 
Well, and that's where it seems like all those, those so interesting details that come in your book. I mean, as you read The Constant Rabbit, I mean, I was just amazed. I mean, you've created this world. You know, they speak a different language. There are different phrases. I love the a freshly pulled carrot instead of a smoking gun. You know, there, <laughs> there's things like, you know, you had to come up with this whole new world. And, and, and I guess that comes out of the narrative dare that you, you have to come up with these things. The way mm. they shake hands, right? Even the way they shake hands. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they've got no thumbs, you know, they don't have any thumbs. So, you know, how do you shake hands? So they, they sort of hold your hand in amongst there too. And and this is what, what I call uh, the sort of, there are about, you know, 15, 20 tenants by which I write. And the logical progression of an idea is a strong one of them. And once you have rabbits, you have to ask yourself, how do they live? Clearly, they're vegan because rabbits are. Um, how do you deal with other issues like um, do they have a religion? If they do, what is it? Um, how does it represent itself? And instead of perhaps uh, in Christianity, you have a cross, um, they, they have a circle. And they've used this circle as, as a way of sort of trying to understand their position within the biosphere. So they have a, they have a very, very strong and I think sound relationship with the planet on which they live, which humans do not, emphatically do not. So they are all talking about the circle and they have all these circles uh, which, you know, where things go back to the beginning and you have to leave the world in a better place in which you found it, which, which was good fun to write, I must say. But it was interesting in a way, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine about this a week ago and they were saying, well, the thing about writing the rabbits, because they'd, they'd read the book and they said, what they like about rabbits is you're writing aliens, right? And aliens are very difficult to write because they have separate rules and regulations. They're differently wired. So it's very easy to make aliens like humans. Like, okay, it's an alien is like a human, but they're very violent, say, like the classic sort of alien. Or the predator, it's kind of like a human hunter, you know, but just taken to the extreme. But it doesn't strike me as a separate entity with a different way of being hardwired. And I think what was fun about the rabbits is that you take humans and rabbits and you put them together and, and you've created a very subtly different version of a human, which is kind of like writing a, an alien that, that sort of makes sense in a, in a strange kind of way. They're not human. I mean, they are definitely not human. How long did it take you to, to come up with this? How long did this book take to write? Uh, I, I think it was a couple of years. Uh, I started it when I was writing Early Riser because um, I wanted a break because Early Riser was a, a monster. Um, and I just took took sort of a month off to write 20,000 words of this idea that I was having. And I really loved it. And as soon as I finished Early Riser, I just went straight back to Constant Rabbit. Um, and it, I think it took me maybe 18 months to write after that. But as the odd thing about these ideas is that once you get that consistent framework, it sort of oddly enough starts to write itself the logic sort of slots into position. You know, there are things that rabbits can do, there are things that rabbits can't do, and it sort of makes all sense. So after that, it was relatively easy to write, um, plus of which I had a, an ending, uh, which is always helps, because then you've got somewhere to head for. So we had the ending came to you toward the beginning, like you thought of the ending at the beginning of the process? Yeah, that like never, never happens to me. Like never happens to me is that I had this ending and I thought, ah, that will work really, really well. And it's kind of unexpected and no, no spoiler alerts, obviously. Coming up, we'll talk about how Jasper Ford started out working in film and TV and how his Thursday Next series of books might not be well-suited for adaptation to any screen. 
if it was a bigger seller, then it would be kind of more on people's radar and they would vaguely understand what it was all about. The whole Thursday Next series is about books and stories. And I think it's kind of uh, for readers. And I think people who watch, binge watch TV or watch movies, it's, it's a different market. Um, and I think Thursday Next is kind of about books and maybe it just remains our little secret and we'll, we'll keep it to ourselves rather sort of selfishly. Plus, we'll talk about his family growing up, his family now, and some of his future projects when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. So this all started for you back when you were 27, working in the film industry and decided mm. to start writing these screenplays, basically, mm. right? That, that mm. then developed into novels. Mm. Ha- has anything ever happened with those screenplays? I mean, did, did any of those evolve into novels or are they still sitting in a, in a box somewhere? Um. No, so I wrote a, a full-length screenplay, which was kind of a bit sort of Brazil-ish, because that was what was happening in those days. You know, a lot of Terry Gilliam sort of silliness. And that was called The Sword and the Salesman. And it was about some character who was looking for the secret of interest-free credit to somehow save his world from destruction. And it was pretty awful, but it had some quite good ideas in it, I thought. And I wrote a few other scripts, which, which you know, one-trick ponies, not very, not very good. Um, and then someone said to me that Graham Greene, the novelist and screenwriter, had said that he, what he does is he writes a treatment first to get everything in place, like the pace and the atmosphere and the characters and how the characters interact and all that complexity. And then he writes the screenplay from the treatment and he would then hand over the treatment and the screenplay um, to actors, directors, uh, casting, whatever, so they fully understand what he was trying to say and do with the film. So I thought, well, this is a good idea. Why don't I write a treatment then of, a, uh, of, a, of an idea I want to make into a film? So I started writing this short story, age 27. And I then suddenly realized that there was a sort of beauty in the, in the written word. Um, and there was a kind of sort of a, um, a sort of understated perfection in being able to take just 26 letters and seven different punctuation marks and creating any world you want. There's, there's no limit to what, the only limit is your own imagination. And also I think I realized that I might be able to do this if I give it a bit of practice. You know, the, the, the words were falling in the correct sort of place, you know, ballpark. And, and so I started writing short stories and I just suddenly segued into from being wanting to be a filmmaker to actually wanting to be an author. And so I never, I never made those screenplays from those short stories. I just started writing. You know, it's interesting with your, with your love of uh, movies and small screen and in and, and your experience that none of your books have been turned into movies. One has been optioned, but that ran out, right? So the last Dragon Slayer was made, Sky made that into a, um, a Christmas one hour. It was a success. They had a lot of people um, watch it and a lot of people download it later and everything else. And they went, great, terrific. We're going to make numbers two and three back to back. And that was great news for me, of course, um, and the series. Uh, but then they just sort of pulled the plug 
uh, because some some of the higher ups decided maybe that what this wasn't the direction they wanted to go, and and that was it. The Thursday next series would be quite an undertaking to to mm. put on the screen. <laughs> yeah, it would be, and and if it was a bigger seller, you know, I mean, if I'd sold, you know, sort of thirty million books rather than only three and a half million books then it would be kind of more on people's radar and they would vaguely understand what it was all about. And I'd be, I'd be more a stronger sort of, you know, part of pop culture, which, which I'm not, and then it would make more sense. And I think everyone would look, look forward to it, but um, yeah, making it now, I think it would be a bit, a bit strange perhaps. Um, people might get a little bit confused about what's going on. Um, and I think also it's, it's the whole first next series is about books and stories. I call it um, books uh, for people who love stories, stories for people who like books. And I think it's kind of uh, for readers. And I think people who watch, you know, binge watch TV or watch movies, it's, it's a different market. It's a, there is crossover. Obviously, people who read books do go to the movies, definitely. But I think there's a lot of people who go to the movies who perhaps don't read books so much. Um, and I think Thursday Next is kind of about books. And maybe it just remains our little secret and we'll we'll keep it to ourselves rather sort of selfishly but you know if someone were to call me now hello jasper yes you know i'm gonna offer you you know seven trillion dollars for all your work you know and your children then i'd probably go yes please where do i sign so at the moment i don't think so but you know you uh you talk about your children i mean how old are your kids uh i've i've got i've got um tons of children actually they're 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 yeah lots of them um I, I, yeah, there are I'm six actually, um, ranging from uh, 32 down to uh, 10. So um, yeah, lots of lots of kids, but I don't think they'd appreciate me selling them. I must say, and I, I don't think it's legal. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to check that, but I don't. I don't think it's legal. There are days I think when all parents <laughs> think about that. <laughs> well, I do threaten them sometimes. You know, right? If you don't go to bed, it'll be. You know, I'm going to sell you off for medical experiments. You know, and they go, yeah, yeah, whatever, Dad. Because I'm, I'm just dad to them. You know, it's like, oh, you know, your dad must be really funny. No, he's not. He's really boring. You know, nothing about my father. So I was going to ask, what do they think about this? I mean, you, you, the way that your, your mind works and you're so, you must be a really cool dad. No, no, not at all. It's not how it works at all. No, I, to them, I'm just like, uh, dad, like, you know, and, and they say, because they're so used to me. You know, this is not, it's things that I say are not particularly unusual. It's just like, oh, dad's just saying silly stuff again. Um, so, you know, I'm sure they look quite like me. You know, I'd like to think they do. Um, but they're very much, you know, dad, you're not funny. You know, when I say something that I think really is quite funny, it's like, like dad, that's like completely not funny, you know. Um, I go, oh, okay. So it's a good leveler, isn't it? So it brings you down a bit. But making your children laugh, oh, that's a hard one. Yeah, that's that's kind of tricky. Saying something that's so funny, your children actually laugh. Um, yeah, it's quite 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 tricky sometimes. Harder mm. than readers sometimes, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, um, they're t- t- children are a tough audience. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, writing children's books. Yeah, that's really hard because yeah. Your sense of humor is so much fun. I love the library <laughs> scenes in this book and some of the things that happen. And it's just so much fun. And your sense of humor, I've read kind of harkens back to your childhood yeah so I had a sort of curious upbringing so um my parents were kind of very very sort of cultured people and they used to take us out to all kinds of you know theater and the ballet and um, opera less so 
Um, but at the same time, as I had this sort of this this diet, so this side, it was also the 70s where we had some very good sitcoms. And I've always loved comedy. And I had a brother, my brother, Matthew. Uh, he had um, a very, very sort of bizarre sense of humor where he put some very, very strange things together, very sort of non sequitous sense of humor, which I really, really, really like. And I think the three things coming together and also being a bit of a sort of loud third child where I was trying to make myself heard. And the best way to do that often is through being the clown, you know, and being the clown in the class and everything like that, which is obviously very annoying uh, for teachers. Um, and I think that's kind of where it all came from. And I kind of developed it, you know, through those sort of teenage years, trying to stand out by being sort of funny and silly. So you've, 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 you're working on the next Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. And then are, did I see that you're also going to make a, a sequel to Shades of Grey? Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, it's, I'm going to finish all the series that I've got open. Because I thought I, I've got to do that at some point. I've got to get it finished. Uh, so I'm Dragon Slayer, finish that series. Uh, Shades of Grey, I think there's another one in that series in which I can sort of really reveal perhaps why this world is like it is and, you know, what's going to happen to Eddie and Jane. And I'll sort out with that. And then there is another in the first and next series. So TN8, as I call it, Dark Reading Matter. And and I've been sort of leading up to the next adventure in, in the Thursday next series. And it's going to be quite exciting getting back to writing Thursday because I haven't written her. She's She's been, you know, basically I haven't seen her seen hide nor hair of her for must be about eight nine years I think and so it's going to be quite fun you know getting to know her again and she'll be of course a little bit older as she always is in all the books and yeah I, I see her running a little running a bookshop somewhere or maybe being a librarian somewhere in retirement and she gets sort of called in perhaps one last you've got to go back to the book world you know all hell's breaking loose oh no I'm done with that you know so a bit of a sort of reluctant hero stuff and it's going to be fun, but I'd like to round that series off as well and just complete the series so they're all done, they're all finished. And then I can just go go and carry on and do some other weird stuff that I'm kind of not even thinking about now. Well, we can't wait. We can't wait because <laughs> The Constant Rabbit, that's a one-off. There, there probably won't be any sequels to that one, right? Uh, no. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, again, I can't really say too much because of a spoiler alert. I mean, the... If, if, if it were to go completely ballistic sales-wise, uh, you know, who knows, um, and someone said, you know, oh, we'll definitely want another book in that series, then, yeah, I mean, I suppose I could. But, um, but as it stands at the moment, I think I've kind of said what I want to say in that particular world, in that particular um, set of circumstances, and I can't really imagine um, revisiting it, I have to say. So uh, as it stands, no, no, it's a, it's a standalone. Well, thank you. This has been a pleasure. I could talk and talk for you with you for quite some time, but I just really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, good. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, good questions. Yeah, good talk. Good talk. Thank you. That was our guest, Jasper Ford. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his newest book, The Constant Rabbit, by publisher Viking Books. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. The editor was Greg Kopp. 
Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.